Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanic. Today we are speaking to Angela Berry, who represented Saran in his uh, appeals and trying to get... Well, he was given parole, but then uh, the governor stepped in and overturned that. And uh, so now there was another hearing. So um, we'll get into that. Hello, Angela. Hi, good morning. Give people, you know, listeners and myself an update of what just recently happened so about two weeks ago now. Sure. Okay. So first of all, I am representing him with respect to his appeal, his parole and the appeal of his parole. So he's had attorneys in the past who have directly appealed his conviction or brought up petitions challenging the factual basis for his plea. Those were other attorneys. I've been Mr. Sirhan's attorney since 2020 when he was preparing for his 2021 parole board hearing. As you indicated, he was granted parole by the parole board in August of 2021. What happens at that stage in California, first of all, the the focus for the parole board is only whether or not the prisoner poses a current unreasonable risk to society if he were released. So it has nothing to do with whether or not they committed the crime, if there's other evidence of other individuals who may have been involved. None of that matters for purposes of parole. Just has the person rehabilitated, um, and in Mr. Sirhan's case, after 53 years, the parole board did decide that based on the amount of programming, positive programming he had done and the rehabilitative efforts that he had made, that he was eligible for parole. That was decided by two members of the parole board. And then what happens after that is the entire parole board then reviews the decision of that two-person panel. They, in this case, approved it. Uh, It then goes to the legal department for the parole board, who also approved it. But then the governor in California, and California is one of only two states, Oklahoma is the other, that allows the governor to step in and override his own appointees and uh, take the parole away. So that's what happened to Mr. Sirhan in January of 2022. Essentially, the governor had up to 120 days to do so. So he did. He, he, uh, contrary to the board, found that Mr. Sirhan still posed an unreasonable risk to society if he were released. He filed a 10-page or so brief supporting his position. 
Um, we then are challenging that in court, and that's still being, that's still being handled. Um, in the meantime, Mr. Sirhan was eligible for a new parole hearing, which um, by law has to occur within 18 months if per- the parole board had approved it and the governor denied it. So that's what occurred two weeks ago. As far as Mr. Sirhan goes, he has done nothing that would change the assessment from the, from the board's perspective. He's done more positive programming. He's been working diligently. He's been doing his therapy. Only good things have, have, have been ha- happening since the grant of parole in 2021. However, this time the board found him unsuitable for release. So uh, we have now a denial under our belts with um, no deleterious performance by Mr. Sirhan that would cause the board to come to a different conclusion than what they had come to just 18 months ago. So we'll probably challenge this one in the courts as well, which we have the right to do. That would also be a a petition for habeas corpus. It would be in front of the same judge that's handling the petition that we filed with respect to the governor's reversal. And with this one, we would be claiming essentially that the board now is kowtowing to the governor since nothing has changed that would cause them to to come to a different conclusion than they did uh, previously. At this last hearing, they focused on the political nature of this crime. That has been something that they've never focused on before with respect to him needing therapy. So in other words, they denied him parole because they want him to do therapy that is directed at political assassinations. They, at the same time telling him he needed to do that therapy, they admitted that they have no such therapy that they can offer him, no such courses they can offer him within the confines of the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, but they are requiring that he do such therapy. The argument is that until he does until he does so in in the 2020 hearings when you say they it is the parole board and then the state the california penal institution state because this time i understand there was a different they who were there arguing against his release okay so yes let me let me clarify that yes so there are 16 board members Uh, it's not always filled to capacity but there are 16 members of the parole board so in 2021 we had two-member, a two-member panel. We had a different two-member panel this time around. I have not been able to determine because it's not public record whether these two individuals who sat in 2023 were part of the parole board in 2021 that reviewed the 2021 decision and um, put their stamp of approval on it. I'm currently trying to find out whether these two members who now denied him went ahead and agreed with the decision in 2021. So that's yet to be determined through our our research and investigation. Right. Well, what I was getting to is I understand that the members of the Kennedy family hired at great expense a law firm to act prejudicially against any release. And that was so surprising. That's true. So in the past, they have not, the the opposers, the Kennedy children and um, Mrs. Ethel Kennedy, in the past have not had anything to say at these parole hearings. Um, In 2021, they did not have anything to say. Um, We did have some Kennedy members who were there and supported Mr. Sirhan's release, um, including Robert Kennedy Jr. and uh, Douglas Kennedy, who had 
never made any comment one way or the other um, until this parole hearing. And he watched Mr. Sirhan and he spoke at the end of that 2021 hearing and told the board that he supported release, that he had never seen this man in person. He always feared his name, his, his, his image. But watching him, he saw a, an old man. He had compassion for him. He believed he was rehabilitated and he supported release. Douglas was not at this new hearing, neither was Robert Kennedy, but the opposers were there. A couple of them were there as well as an attorney for Mrs. Kennedy and attorneys for uh, two of the members who were there who claimed to also be uh, supporting the other Kennedy children who were in opposition. So the board allowed all of them to speak. The board limited my comments to 10 minutes and then allowed the Kennedy children and their lawyers unlimited time to speak. So it went on for a couple hours after I was able to make my comments. And by law, the way it's set up is the victims or the next of kin get the last word. So they went on for a couple hours as to why they believe he is still dangerous. Now, what I thought was striking and very interesting is the two who did show up were Carrie Kennedy and Christopher Kennedy. And whereas in 2021, when Douglas appeared, now this is all being done remote, by the way. So everybody was on on a link, a video link. When Douglas appeared at the 2021 hearing, he watched the whole thing. He listened to Mr. Sirhan's uh, responses to the board. He listened to Mr. Sirhan's closing statement. And then he made his statement and, you know, was able to observe the man who who was facing release or a denial. Um, both Carrie and Christopher introduced themselves and then they removed themselves from the hearing until it was time for them to speak. So they didn't even give Mr. Sirhan an opportunity to express his remorse to them. They turned off their videos when they were beckoned to come back on. They weren't even available. The, the, their lawyer said, let me get a hold of them and then brought them back on to make their uh, 45 minute each long um, statements as to why he is still dangerous to society. So yeah, we were um, severely out uh, numbered. We were um, I, I, we were at a disadvantage given that the board only gave me 10 minutes to address the issues. Um, the they also submitted in advance of the hearing a legal brief on behalf of these. Um, Kennedy opposers. Um, the legal brief contained uh, other information, extraneous information that um, they're claiming uh, is relevant for purposes of the parole hearing that was not part of Mr. Sirhan's central file. That's his, his file with CDCR. Um, so it went much differently this time. Basically, you are not allowed to retry the case. You're not even asking for that. You're just asking for parole on his behavior. You give your 10 minutes, and then I understand they went through all the uh, items of the case and cherry-picked what they wanted to make, and they, they basically disregarded any of the instructions in the beginning. Is that true? That is true. That is true. So, yes, they went through the, quote, heinous nature of the crime. They wanted to focus on what happened 54 years ago, not only to their family, but to America, to the world. That was their main focus, was the atrocious nature of this crime makes him still dangerous to society today. As far as not following the rules, so not only did they focus on that, at the very beginning, 
beginning of the the hearing, the hearing officer did tell everybody present that they are to only address their statements to the board, not to address Mr. Sirhan personally. Mr. Sirhan was not to address them personally. And and Carrie Kennedy just started going at at Mr. Sirhan two different times. He had to remind her not to. Now, she may have excused herself before he even finished giving the instructions as to how the, the, the hearing was going to go. I don't know. But I think that further demonstrates the point that they had, they had no regard for following the, the policies and procedures that are supposed to be recognized by all parties involved. Well, it almost sounds like the way I heard it, the, the fix was in, that this was like skiing uphill, that you were there yeah. to just say he's already been approved for parole. The governor right. really shouldn't have done that, you know, overturned that. And now we would just like petition again to the state to recognize what they already found, that he was eligible for parole. And I think last time, one of the stipulations they had, if he didn't live with his brother, he would go back. Is it Jordan? He would go back. He would leave the country. So he wouldn't be well, a threat. We, yeah. So we, we actually don't know where he would end up. Um, my Freedom of Information Act requests with respect to his immigration status and what ICE would do with him were denied. They claim to not have any documents that are releasable. So we don't know where he would go. And the the issue with that is when his family left Palestine, Palestine was not part of Jordan. It is part of Jordan now, but they were political refugees and the uh, American government took them in. So he's really a man without another country if America is not his country. So we don't know where he would go. But, But your point is well taken that if he is not permitted to stay in the United States and he's thrown to some other country, it shouldn't be a concern of the governor here that he's a threat to society. Uh, Another thing that they focus on, which is entirely unfair to Mr. Sirhan, is they are concerned, they meaning the board now and the governor in his denial, are concerned that other people will, will use his name for their cause. And that he's, he doesn't appreciate the, the potential impact he could have on people who have less than positive intentions. That's completely out of his control. If somebody wants to use his name, that doesn't mean he's, he's a danger. I mean, did somebody, right? I mean, it, sorry, did anyone give an example? What did they think he would endorse a, a candidate for something? Or this is almost preposterous. It is what they what they use as an example, which his family and he completely denounced. But back in, I believe it was the seventies, some Palestinians took some hostages. I believe they even killed some hostages. But they took hostages, and their demand was to free Sirhan Sirhan, and he had nothing to do with that. In fact, his mother, Mary Sirhan, was seeking permission to leave the United States so that she could go and act as a peacekeeper and tell them, you know, don't do this. We we have nothing to do with this. Please free these hostages. And she could not get the permission from the United States government to leave the country to go do this. Um, That is the, the only tangible thing that they have. But it's been shown that Mr. Sirhan and his family advocated against anybody using his name for their purposes. But that's what they keep going back to. And they say that could happen again. And so that therefore makes him a danger in their eyes. Oh, 
They're, they're grasping so at straws. It's the, the, just the poverty of that. It's unbelievable. Yes. You know? it, it really is. So I, I believe that this um, most recent um, decision by the board, as you said, was a fix. Um, I think we went into this um, with them already having their decision made. They, you know, came up with things that have never been addressed by the board before. Now this whole thing about, yes, you've done all this therapy all these years. You've done all this great work. But now we want you to do something that we don't even offer, which is um, counseling on political assassination. And the reason why I also think that that is disingenuous, by the way, is we have records going back to the 70s where the psychological experts, psychiatrists and psychologists have um, opined that Mr. Sirhan, because of the political nature of the um, of the killing, is less likely to reoffend than any other murderer. And um, I suppose the rationale behind that is because it's so specific to an individual. Um, and they have all those records. And Mr. Sirhan actually, the day before this hearing, handed me another um, psychiatrist report, and I was just digging for it when we started this, um, that was for some reason not in his um, central file. And despite me asking for all of his psychological reports over the years and then telling me I had everything they had, um, I didn't. Um, but he was able to produce one from 19, I have the original, from April 12, 1975, where uh, a psychiatrist there talks about the fact that because it was a um, politically motivated, assuming, you know, the facts are as, as he was convicted um, are true, because it was politically motivated, that makes him less likely to reoffend than, than any other murderer. And that's 1975. We also have some from 1982, from 86. So the psychiatrists and psychologists have all said that that is not a factor. Now the board's using that as a factor, the political nature of it. Well, I know it's, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, but if they, if they were going to do that next time, maybe you could bring in someone else. I guess it just has to be family of Saran to back up his statements. But if you were to bring Scott Enyart in or uh, Thomas Noguchi to say, no matter what you think of this, bullet wounds to, to Bobby Kennedy were from behind zero to two inches based on powder burns. So it's impossible for Saran to have done this. You know, Right. So, you the, know. so the board doesn't want to hear about that. Oh, right? I know. So, But I'm just saying, if they, if they want to hear about the facts... Uh, well, right. The fact that the Supreme Court. Um, um, right. You know, and what's interesting is so I, I was mentioning to you previously how um, Carrie Kennedy and Christopher Kennedy went on and on. And I was given 10 minutes and they each spoke for 45 minutes, maybe even 60 minutes. Um, the, the law provides that the victims or the next of kin at these parole hearings um, are allowed to speak, they're allowed to speak on anything, and it has to be uninterrupted, and they get to just keep going. Whatever they want to say, they just get to, to say it. However, in Sirhan's 2016 parole hearing, where the late Paul Schrade um, testified on behalf of uh, Mr. Sirhan, and um, for your viewers who may not know who that is, Paul Schrade was one of the um, people who was struck by one of the bullets that evening. He was struck on the head. Um, he was a campaign manager and confidant of Robert Kennedy's, and they were very good friends. 
he has been advocating, had been advocating for uh, Mr. Sirhan's freedom for over 40 years. He attended the 2016 hearing and he wanted to get into the, the facts, um, just as you were suggesting, the being shot in the back of the head at point blank range, um, more bullets being shot than uh, his gun could carry, you know, all of those issues. And despite the law that says that the victim gets to speak uninterrupted about anything, the board would not let him talk. They just kept cutting him off, telling him he couldn't get into the facts, couldn't get into the facts. So I thought that that was interesting as well. They let the, the Kennedys um, at this last hearing get into what they believe the facts are um, based on the, the record of conviction. Yet you have a victim who is there who has done extensive research um, since that trial and a lot of the evidence that has been um, dug up or finally released to the public um, definitively proves something different than the way the trial went, he's cut off because they don't want to hear it. So that was also a very interesting contrast between how different victims were treated. Yeah, it is. And then, you know, another question about that is, I don't know if you can verify this, but uh, there was two lawyers there that those Kennedy family members hired to help represent them and the number i'm hearing was like upwards of two hundred thousand dollars that they spent to to keep saran i mean it's just it's appalling yes i i i it's just something i've heard as well through other sources that yeah they spent about two hundred fifty thousand dollars on their appeal to the board um what i learned subsequently to I hate to interrupt, but once again, this is not sure. for the trial of the facts. This is just for appealing his parole. He was granted parole, and they're spending right. this much money to make sure that they overturn his parole, which he duly earned over 50 or so 50, years. 53 years, exactly. Right. They, they didn't bother coming to the parole hearing in 2021, which they have the right to do. And when the parole board ruled against them, they then hired this law firm, to overturn it. Now, so what I was about to tell you is I learned subsequently that prior to the governor making his decision, they also appealed to the governor with um, a brief from their lawyer and extraneous information that they believe supported their position. Um, this is something that I learned through filing my habeas petition challenging the governor's decision in the courts. They then turned this information over to me. So now I know that in December of 2021, before the governor made his decision the next month, um, they had their lawyer already appealing to the governor. And I was never notified of that. The fix was in. When I was speaking to Jen, she mentioned that she received a text from, uh, you know, her landlord or so, whoever it was that's saying, oh, I'm sorry about the bad news. And you guys are in the trial there or the appeal room. And they're announcing on TV that Saran, who was denied again. I can't speak to that because I don't know. She did mention that to me as well. Um, I have not seen any of the um, the press that was announcing the decision prior to the decision um, being formally announced. So I can't speak to that. Well, <laughs> it is interesting if that's true then. And, you know, just the fact that what went on in this hearing like you mentioned, that they were allowed so much time uninterrupted, went at great legal expense to overturn something that was already granted on his behavior, and uh, and 
Never mind the fact that he didn't kill Senator Robert Kennedy. Uh, you know, Lisa Pease believes that there was um, blanks in his gun. Regardless, right. regardless of of that, he was there. He was doing something. He was uh, certainly. I was going to say hypnotized. I know I can't prove that right now, but something happened where people were handling him. He was a patsy to be there to pull out a gun and start some commotion where somebody else snuck right up behind him. And, and then, then it was a political killing, but it had nothing really to do with Saran. And uh, when you study his case, many books and documentaries about it, the more you look into it, the murkier it looks. It's just like, sure. what the hell went on here? I mean, how did yeah. they get this guy there, right? They took him to a shooting range in the afternoon for him. To, you know, I mean, it's just. Yeah, and I agree with you. And it's um, very intriguing. And there are so many pieces to this. And, and on a side note, we are um, looking into that. At this point, what I'm looking into for a legal challenge to the conviction is um, because. So one of the one of the. Um, obstacles in bringing another challenge based on the way the trial went is there's what's called a ban against successive petitions. So you can't just keep filing new things over and over again, get a new lawyer, do it again, do it again. Um, so one of the areas of exploration now is what evidence was not turned over to the defense at the time. Witnesses who didn't fit their nice um, tight theory that Sirhan acted alone. Um, a lot of these witnesses um, came to the surface after the fact. Now, the question becomes, were they given to was their information and their statements given to the defense at the time and he ignored them? Or were those statements just tucked away and never given to the defense? If it was the latter, um, we would have an argument that this is what we call Brady material. It was a United States Supreme Court um, and, and the defendant's name was Brady. And essentially, if the prosecution or law enforcement fails to give the defense um, critical information um, that could impact the case, um, we, we could gain a new trial. So at this point, I'm trying to determine what was tucked away and what was given to counsel and just defense counsel and just ignored by him. And um, there are a lot of challenges with that because um, defense counsel is no longer with us. And those records don't exist anymore. So it's not like I can just go grab his old file and see what did he know of. And he just decided not to follow up on. But that is an avenue that we are uh, simultaneously exploring in addition to um, trying to make this right with his release on, on just the grounds of he is entitled to parole because he's no longer a current dangerousness. Well, for the people who, who studied the case, you know, I have and... It's it's just shocking, this Kennedy kids, their vitriol towards this. It's as if they haven't read one document. They never talked to Thomas Noguchi. They didn't talk to Scott Enyard. They didn't talk to Lynn Mangan. They, you know, they just like they haven't talked to anyone. I agree with you. And my, <clears throat> my, <laughs> be polite here, my disdain for them <laughs> knows no bounds. But the shocking thing was, that Robert Kennedy, I think, was supposed to be there. He was supposed to help, and this could have really tipped the balance. Can you offer any insight or offer anything to the fact that he didn't show up? 
Um, and if you can't, fine. I just, I just yeah. found it surprising. What I, what I would tell you is um, when I first came in on the case in 2020, when I first got a call from Sirhan asking me to represent him, I knew nothing about his case. Um, I just knew what little bit I knew from my history books, and I was too young at the time to have you know, an independent opinion about it. And he was one of the first people I called when I was told that he supported Sirhan's release. And he told me he would appear at the 2021 hearing. And as it got closer, he decided to just write a letter instead, which he did. Um, and then for 2023, um, he did indicate that he would be there. And we had been preparing for that. And I'd been in contact with him. And then about two weeks beforehand, he wasn't sure if he was going to, but he would write a letter. And then about two nights beforehand, he decided not to write a letter. Um, I don't believe that his opinion has changed. I think he still supports the release. I think he still believes well, that. Let me, let me just say that his father. Right. Huh? But how how could his opinion not change? The, him being there, and that's his father. His impact statement would have the most weight. I no, I agree with you. I'm saying I believe his opinion is the same as it was back in 2021 when he wrote his letter that Sirhan should be released, and he didn't believe Sirhan killed his father. I believe his statements and his convictions are still the same, yet he, he did not um, assist, and that's all I can say about that. <laughs> okay, well, if that's all you can say, I'm going to add that I think it has everything to do with him deciding to run for president and, and having a, a GoFundMe page or whatever it is to say that I'd like to run if people will fund my campaign, but then he didn't want to be tied to releasing someone who that the general public may have thought had something to do with uh, I mean who knows what what <laughs> their family dinners are like with the other side of the table those kids I mean it's just un unbelievable to me and and to those who have spent any little of their own time trying to level the playing field trying to let people know what the facts are in the case no matter no matter who did what I'm a Canadian so it doesn't matter to me you find out who did what but then you find out that you don't think Sirhan had anything to do with Bobby Kennedy. You wonder what the hell he was even doing there. For years, he had no memory. It's like wiped clean. How can he have remorse for something he just doesn't even remember? And the only person really that stood up for him was Bobby Kennedy before. And, well, I shouldn't say that because... Paul Charade. Yeah, Paul Charade went in person. Almost with a little bit of animosity to the board, he, he spoke and said, I forgive you. If I'm correct, and he said, I do not believe that you killed Senator Kennedy, and whatever happened that day, I forgive you, right? And right. I thought, now, he does, he qualified it with, I do believe that you shot me, but I do not believe that you shot my good friend, Robert Kennedy. And I think that that's an important statement because he still has the wherewithal and forgiveness, even though he was shot, he believes, by Sir Hans Gunn. Yeah, that's an impact statement, right? Right. So, right. you know, in one way, if the parole board was neutral about it, they say, well, he's no threat. Here is even a guy that may have been injured by him, and he forgives him. And uh, they're okay. saying there's much more to this case. But in the meantime, let him let him have parole. And in the worst case is he leaves the country. Right. Otherwise, his or, family... Or, or in their view, the best case, he leaves the country. Right. But right. he was going to live with his brother. They had canvassed neighbors and everything no one had a problem that was, that's uh, right we even had letters from from the the neighbors that they all had no problem with sirhan moving in and unfortunately so, you, know, so you, you made a statement earlier about how um 
they haven't bothered to look at any of the evidence, Thomas Noguchi's report, um, Lynn Magnin's book, Lisa Peace's work. You're correct. And I think that that continued even at this hearing when they introduced themselves and then went offline until it was time for them to speak. They wanted nothing to do with hearing anything that Mr. Sirhan had to say, um, watching him in person, um, you know, they, they, they continued that ostrich in the, in the sand approach, even at this hearing and didn't give themselves even an opportunity to see the rehabilitated old man, feeble old man that he is now, which is what caused Douglas Kennedy to have an opinion that he was deserving of release because he actually sat and listened to everything. The two that appeared didn't bother. It's a sad state of affairs. He was granted parole. I'm sure he'd just be living with his brother right now, quietly, right. and a few people may come over to visit him for in the neighborhood. But he, he, I don't think he'd be endorsing any kind of candidates or speaking for, for Pepsi or something. You know what I mean? You know? No, he just wants to live the last of his years with his brother, who can barely see anymore. They just want to take care of each other. Um, and Sirhan has a lot of support. So you say he, w- he wouldn't be seeing anybody. I, I would be involved in his life. Um, Paul Schrade had, had pledged to be there for him. But um, as you may know, he passed in uh, November of last year. Um, Robert Kennedy has voiced to me, uh, Junior, has voiced to me that um, he would be um, a, a, a support uh, person for Sirhan if he were released. Um, Jen Abreu, uh, he has a lot of people who would be there to help him with a smooth transition into society after 54 years. Um, I, I have no doubt in my mind that he would try to just lead a very um, quiet, incognito existence, going to doctor's appointments, going to the grocery store and living a very simple old man life. Now, you do have another uh, legal angle months away that you are working on. So I, I hesitate to talk too much about Robert Kennedy in the case that he does come to help you in the future. But it, this was kind of a negative blow to me when he didn't show up. And like you mentioned, uh, he said, I won't be there. I'll write a letter. And then he said, I won't even write a letter. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, is it because you're going to run for president? That's why you've mm-hmm. let an innocent man suffer his final years? Yeah, I got a, I got a, my Facebook or whatever, you know, please support my campaign. Text me at this number and... My first thought was to leave him something uh, not all that pleasant. <laughs> I just thought I'll just, I won't say anything, you know, but I mean, you, I guess yeah. you don't have any idea and we'll just leave it at that. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I'd prefer not to. Right. To okay. But I, I just looking at it from here, I go, that's strange. It's strange how you that's... can be there and then not. And it's the most important time because, uh, yeah. It's, uh, and, and, uh, and your observation is fair. You're, okay, you're all right. <laughs> Thank you. We'll leave it. All right, then. So do you want to just briefly, we'll wrap up with what your future plans are then with illegal? Sure, yeah. So bottom line is, Mr. Sohan is no longer a risk to society. In fact, since the mid-'80s, the psychologists and psychiatrists who work for the Department of Corrections have indicated that he is no longer a risk. In fact, he falls on um, the lowest risk um, possible and lower than any other um, convicted murderer. They've been saying that since the 80s. Finally, the board had the guts to do the right thing in 2021 uh, when they 
received pushback by the governor and he reversed them. Now we're seeing that pushback again for the 2023 denial. Um, we're challenging the governor's decision that just takes a long time, unfortunately. Um, the Kennedy children and Mrs. Kennedy have also filed what's called an amicus brief in that case. Um, so they filed papers with the court as to why they believe he should stay in custody. So we're, we're facing them again in the legal challenge before the courts. We are also considering filing um, a petition with the court regarding this last denial on the claim that it was a violation of his due process rights to find him suitable. Nothing deleterious has occurred since then. And they changed their decision based on what, what we believe, based on the governor's uh, reversal and that it is not supported by evidence in the record. So that's where we stand. We're you know, facing a big uphill battle um, in the case that we have before the courts right now challenging the governor's decision. The attorney general's office has filed a brief in support of the governor. The district attorney's office, this is interesting. Um, this might be interesting for your viewers to hear. The district attorney's office has, is now opposing um, our petition uh, for release. George Gascon has a policy that his office does not support attending parole hearings and will not advocate for somebody staying in custody if they receive a low risk assessment and if they've been in prison for 20 years. That's why they did not appear at the 2021 hearing. That's why they did not appear at the 2023 hearing. Yet they filed papers, a brief in response to my habeas petition in front of the court to support the governor's decision. So we have theirs and then we also have the brief again by the Kennedy opposers. So I have a lot of work ahead of me <laughs> fighting a lot of big engines here. Well, the shame is the general public has no idea that these things are going on and your good work and then what's going on is this uphill battle. You know, I'd love to see something like a 10-point bullet plan of the problems that happened here, like you, you mentioned about the Kennedy family bringing up the case, almost retrying the case when they were that was prohibited and then your hands are tied. Maybe people should, if they were, if there's $250,000 coming from somewhere to a legal team to help keep, the people need to know about this, just to, just to level the playing field that's saying, look, at either you're having a new trial or you're just talking about his parole. And has he accepted the, the terms of parole? Here are the terms. They voted. They said he suits release. And then now this other stuff comes up. I mean, I, I hate to say you could shame the Kennedy kids into actually looking into the trial, say, well, we have to defend ourselves against this. And then they start reading and they go, oh, boy, are we wrong? Yeah, right. Well, I think the other issue, too, is that California needs to rethink this authority that they've given the governor to overturn the parole board. Um, the parole board are appointees of the governor. So they sit at the governor's behest. These people are trained. They are former law enforcement. They are the last gatekeeper, if you will, um, to protect society. Um, they are former police officers, um, district attorneys, um, uh, wardens of the prisons. Um, the inspector general, in fact, was one of our panel members in 2021. These people know the system. They know the um, what behaviors occur in the prisons. They know how re what rehabilitation looks like. They know all these things. The governor does not know this. So the governor can then come in and just make a decision on a whim. 
And this governor, even before he made his decision, was talking about how Robert Kennedy was his um, political hero, how he has a shrine of, of Robert Kennedy in his home office and at his house, um, clearly demonstrating his affinity towards the, the late senator. Um, and then we give him the power to decide Mr. Sirhan's fate. I mean, to me, that just smacks of a lack of due process. And I think that the California voters need to be, or the legislature needs to be thinking about um, whether or not this practice, which was actually voted by the voters of California in 1988 to amend the California Constitution to give the governor that power, I think that that needs to be revisited. Um, there were at 1.6 states that allowed for it. Uh, Maryland, just last year, perhaps two years ago at this point, the legislature took that power away from the governor because they realized that it, it, was, it was causing uh, denials of parole to be based simply on political reasons rather than on the factual basis of whether or not the person was um, actually dangerous to society. Um, so that's a big takeaway that but people need to be thinking about. Yeah, and the problem is all these hearings are, you're not supposed to retry the facts of the case. That's why I'd like to see an open letter to say, okay, Governor Newsom, you denied his parole, but did you know A, B, C, D? You know, here are the facts of the case. If you don't want to address them, then stay out of the parole appeal because either grant him right. a new trial or not. And, you know, so. Yeah. So, so just a caveat to that statement. Um, California Supreme Court law does uh, state that the facts of the crime um, are relevant to the extent that they reflect on current dangerousness. So that is how the Kennedys were bringing up the facts. So they're saying that based on the atrocious nature of the crime, that um, there is a nexus between that behavior and who he is today. Now, they're going from A to Z without filling in all the, all the other letters, right? But, but that is uh, what they're doing with the facts. So the facts aren't completely irrelevant if there can be a case made for the fact that um, those underlying factors from 54 years ago that caused that crime still exist today. Uh, well, so it's not completely. So, so in other words, it's not completely illegal, and they weren't completely out of bounds bringing up the facts of the case. Yeah, are you familiar with Scott Enyart's trial? Uh, no, no, not at all. Oh, okay, because the, it's the thing that happened was, uh, you know, California has their own uh, lawyers, yet they they paid to have Skip Miller in to uh, attack him. And go over, and it reminds me just of the parallel here, where the Kennedy kids bring in some high-priced lawyers to kind of get their way, in spite of the facts. And this is where you want a level playing field. Like it right. should, it shouldn't be in spite of the facts. But you know what? <laughs> Let's leave that for another day. I wish you good luck. Uh, I, I, yes, thank you. They, so they hired Pat Cipollone's law firm, by the way. If you recall who Pat Cipollone is, White House counsel to Trump. I thought that that was interesting. Yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> he knows so how to grease the – because yeah. if it is true that um, word was leaked that Sirhan has been denied before – while it's still going on, hours before they vote on it, then you know the fix is in. And, right. uh, and uh, 
he knew how where to spend that two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get his verdict. You know, yep. so uh, that's the sad state of affairs that way. But uh, I didn't even phone Jen for a week because I just thought, oh, you know, those of us have been studying this for years, 20, 30 years. You know, okay, this, you know, they're optimistic. And then, oh, welcome to my world. We've seen this every four years, this uh, devastating loss of trust in the American justice system. You know, know, regardless, you know, if, if it's a, a cold cold cut case whatever you know i'm saying that he did it he did it okay in 25 years he would be out you know um but in the in the case that there's so much mystery to to that whole era back then and what he was doing and who was handling him and and uh his first lawyer it's an atrocity you know um and then and well i don't have to go over that you are aware of some of those problems he had so um thank you so much for sharing time with me today and bringing people up to date on what's happening and we'll look forward to uh whatever good efforts you can make in the near future anytime okay thank okay. you so i will email you or phone you when it when we have some more news to talk about sounds great okay thank you, thank you very much okay. okay you're listening to black op radio Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to author Vince Palamara. Uh, no, needs no introduction. Hello, Vince. Oh, hello, Len. Thanks for having me on again. Love being on here, and thanks to all your listeners. Appreciate it. Great. I did want to talk about a review that you have up, and some other little things that are just keeping in touch with you. So first of all, where do people get a hold of you? I'll make links at the website, but one of them is going to be vincepalamara.com. Yes. Okay. And then do you have another site? Uh, yes, I do. It is. Let me pull that up. It's um, HTTP VincePalameraBlogspot.com. That's like a Google blog, blogger. So VincePalameraBlogspot and the other one's VincePalamera.com. And I also have my YouTube channel. In fact, if you just put Vince Palamera in Google – Everything comes up, my Amazon page with five books, the YouTube channel, the two major blogs and several other things, my internet movie database page and so on. <laughs> yeah, and I think over the last year, maybe not so much, right, just in the last few months, but maybe over COVID and that, there was quite a few good videos, lengthy videos that came out from your channel. So I, a lot of people were talking about them. That Yeah, I went crazy. That was a, <clears throat> two things uh, good came from COVID was that um, – I concentrated on a fifth book. I had no idea I was going to write a fifth book. I ended up doing it during that time. And then I also went nuts on my YouTube channel. I used to only upload like a couple videos a year from between 2007 when it began up to like 2019. 2020 on hundreds and hundreds of video uploads. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and yeah, the reaction has been really good. And, uh, you know, it's getting that information out there because a lot of other <clears throat> channels have gone under. A lot of the other videos have gone under or hard to find or they weren't presented in their full length. They weren't remastered, etc. Plus, I had a lot of unique individual stuff I put up there, too. So, yeah, it's good to be. Uh, yeah, yeah a- here's one of, one of the good things I appreciate about you. There are lots of people from every walk of life that had an interest in the case and they start doing research and then pretty soon they're contributing to it. Now, it's never been a case that I had to say, oh, I have a big disagreement or I agree or, you know, it's a Pruder film or the man in the doorway. What You know, you go about 
offering your research and people either agree or disagree with you. It's kind of like that with um, a John Armstrong. Some people disagree with him, but he just offers his research. You specialize in the Secret Service. So, you know, Mantic and, and Aguilar, other people are in medical evidence more. So you get these people who have a genuine interest and they don't, they're not trying to make constant arguments or I'm right or my way, the highway, you know. And uh -huh. Yeah. That's one thing I get when I'm reading a book by you or watching one of your videos. Here, you're trying to say, here's what we know right now, you know? And maybe here for now, we, we know more. Well, that's <clears throat> what I'm saying I appreciate from you. Oh, I really appreciate that, Len. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I've always tried to keep an open mind. I have a very open mind. I'm not wedded to any theory. And as we've known, I've said it multiple times. But for a few short months in 2007, I was swayed to – Please forgive me, the lone nutter side, a little bit. I still believe there was multiple conspiracies at the time to kill Kennedy, but I thought so somehow, some way, a lone nut might have beat the conspiracies to the punch. I wasn't totally far gone, but what that shows is when I snapped out of it a few months later, so we're talking, what, 16 years ago now. But the point being is I have a very open mind. I'm not like religiously like a cult. It's my theory. It's my way of the highway. I see all sides of the arguments and I see the good, the bad, what, what, what we know, what we'll probably never know, what we'll never agree to. So I see the limitations of historical research in general and on this topic in particular because a lot of people passed away. There's a lot of people out there with specialties, a lot of people with theories, and we have a natural human tendency to have our own biases. I mean, even me, come on, let's face it. I had a fascination with the Secret Service and it translated over, transferred to the Kennedy assassination. So unlike some people that probably just don't even give the Secret Service a second thought, I'm like looking at the newsreels of Kennedy and I'm looking past the shoulder, oh, there's Jerry Bain, there's this agent, there's Clint Hill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there you go. That's a bias in itself, of itself. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I even forgot about that. But I'll I'll say this. It, it's um it's an attribute for someone to say I was wrong about something, you know. And yeah, we should really <laughs> admire that for the people who say, look, I've read, you know, for instance, Bugliosi's book or something like that, and he makes some good points in that. And then over a couple of months, people write into you or whatever and say, but he says this, but it can't be true, and let me show you. And then so many people offer what, what should be in good research, you know, like maybe Spartacus and, you know, some of these, other, but they're, they're just, we're not trying to start a mud-flinging war. We're trying to say, here's a, a bunch of circumstances. What do you make of this? And between the community, we say, well, this, it must be this, it must be this. And yeah, the case isn't solved, but if you have an honest interest and from time to time people are wrong about something or, or they yeah. learn more. You know, I didn't know that then. Now that I have this piece of new information, some new documents are released. I'm going to have to augment my point of view. Yes. I've augmented mine for the better, actually, Larry. Rather than being uh, wet blankets or raining on my parade, a lot of the file releases from the Assassination Records Review Board and especially the treasure trove of digitized Photographs, not only just from the JFK Library, films and photos, but um, just from just John Q. Citizen and all points in between the library and organizations. There has been so much released in the last 5, 10, 15 years that was never available before as far as films and photos go. And it's like vast. It's amazing. All the motorcade footage. It's amazing. All the newspaper.com releases of old newspapers who are long out of print, long and forgotten. And again, it used to just be – Back in the days of old, like in the 90s into the early millennium, it used to just be, here's plenty of film of Kennedy's inaugural parade in Dallas. 
and very little in between. Now that problem is gone. We have thousands of films, thousands of photos, so we can really truly weigh and assess what did and did not happen in Dallas rather than guesswork. And it's the same thing with uh, you know the Assassination of Records Review Board. It took a few years. It took a while to really mine that to go through that. It, yeah, those releases. Yeah, they were the you know the mid late nineties. But it took. And it was obviously more recent ones. But people like Jim DiEugenio did God's work, amazing work in his books and his articles on Kennedys and King and so on and so forth. And it really you know obviously the new Oliver Stone documentary, which is fabulous. You know you have uh, all that out there and. Um, you know, it's really uh, – it went from like like John Newman once said, the days of theorizing are over. You know, the well-being – after you get past Sylvia Marr and Harold Weisberg and that and a couple other people, a lot of the work from that point on was theory-driven because we had a dearth, a, a lack of information. You know, we didn't have all these films and photos, so we speculated. We didn't have all these documents, so we speculated and, and so on and so forth. But now uh, the, those days are over, and that brings us up to now. And uh, just like you know, I, I admit that I was wrong one time, you know, there was a time I briefly kind of retired from the case recently. Not totally retired, but kind of was just burned out. And it's just the people dragged me back, man. What it was was uh, no joke. I actually even stopped putting stuff on YouTube for a while. I was just really burned out. I think it was work-related. That's another issue. Just kind of like work was burning me out, so I was kind of burned out of the case and not. Uh, I uploaded a few videos and they got thousands of views, tons of comments and people write me every day and they've got me interested again because it's like the people will not – and I mean this in a good way. The people will not let this rest, man. Whether I wanted to rest or not, it's like no rest for the wicked. They're coming after me like crazy and it's like – uh yeah. So it kind of got re- – you know, maybe rejuvenated about everything and – uh yeah, so here we go. If you want, Len, we can talk about those two books that I mentioned recently that are coming out. You know, let me know if you want to get into right. that. Yeah. Well, just uh, as of March tenth, twenty twenty three, you had uh, Secret Service agent Paul Landis. He has a new yeah. book coming out, and you got the headline: Beware. So uh, that's what I think people might want to know: uh, what insight you have, why we should be wary. Yes. Well, after the Gerald Blaine nonsense from. Wow, going on 13 years ago now. Time flies. Where Gerald Blaine came out and, you know, we'll make his story very quick because we've already plumbed that a few times in past shows. But just to get everybody up to speed to talk about Paul Landis. Well, Paul Landis was one of actually several, quite a few. Maybe we'll go to several agents that Gerald Blaine spoke to for his book, The Kennedy Detail. And Gerald Blaine's book was an attempt to whitewash the Secret Service's failure on November 22nd, 1963, and also tacitly put the blame on President Kennedy, who's dead and can't defend himself. And I debunked all that through my own books and my review on Kennedy's and King and videos. But the thing about Paul Landis was this gets right into his book. His book is coming out in October 2023. It's called The Final Witness. And the funny thing, the title is a joke because he's not the final witness. A lot of them passed away, but there's still quite a few still living. And then he goes, a Kennedy Secret Service agent breaks his silence after 60 years, and that's a total joke. Now, did he have um, you know reports that he submitted to the Warren Commission? Okay, he spoke to he lives in the Ohio area near Cleveland. Well, he um, did press interviews in the late 80s for the 25th anniversary. Again, he contributed to Gerald Blaine's best-selling New York Times book, New York Times best-selling book in 2010, and was also on the documentary that was shown several times on television. And he's also done other um, 
news interviews in the last five years or so. So this whole thing about breaks the signs for 60 years, that's a joke. But the big, the central thing, the real, but we know when you get back, all people might, might say, well, that's Vince, Vince, come on. That's just, you know, book hype. You're just trying to hype the book, the final witness. Hey, he breaks the silence. Oh, that's not that big of a sin. And we could say, okay, maybe the big scheme is thing that's minor. However, this was buried in Gerald Blaine's book. And I think it's going to be in big star studded neon lights and big billboards for his book that Paul Landis is one of, as a lot of researchers know, is one of the champions of a shot coming from the front. There is two reports, okay? Uh, one dated uh, November 27th. And so this is actually five days of assassination. And then one dated three days later, November 30th. And both reports, he states unequivocally, a shot came from the front. Paul Landis was riding in the fall car. He was riding on the running board behind Jack Reddy, who was behind JFK on that side. Okay, so that's amazing news. Well, in Gerald Blaine's book, it's buried in a paragraph. It basically says that, you know, Paul Landis, I'm paraphrasing, Paul Landis used to believe a shot may have come from the front, but he realizes with the advent of time, it must have been echoes. He had to have been mistaken. Well, it's obvious from this book that he's going to accentuate that even further in probably many pages to try to um, claim it was all just a mistake. But poor Paul Landis, not only does he have the two reports, they're in the Warren Commission volume, volume 18. Well, this is very few people know this. This is pretty amazing. But the Haas Select Committee contacted him in the 70s, in February 1979 to be exact, right when they were um, gearing up for – their um, final report, literally like everything was done. The investigation was over and they were going to finally finalize the report. And I guess they got on their Watts line and made some final calls here and there to try to iron stuff out. And wait till you hear this. The Hasa committee interviewed Paul Lance on February 17th, 1979. And, and they noted, and it's on, um, it's on the Hasa committee report. Page 89 and 606, and it's referencing Landis's interview. It says, Landis confirms the accuracy of his statement to the Warren Commission. Now, obviously, they meant not the Warren Commission, the body, but the report he submitted to it. Again, Landis confirmed the accuracy of his, his statement when he spoke to the Hustler Committee in the dying days when they were writing a report on February 17, 1979. So not only do we have the two reports he wrote, but very inconveniently for old Paul Landis – 16 years later, 15 plus years, we'll say, he said, yes, my reports, I stand by my report. Okay. And again, you know, in 2010, he does that little buried in Gerald Blaine's book about how, you know, he must have been, you know, it must have been just a mistake, uh, an echo from the overpass. Well, uh, Paul Lannis has another major problem. He also does not believe the single bullet theory. Paul Landis and Clint Hill together both came out in the same year, 2016, albeit in separate avenues. Clint Hill came out in his book, um, Five Presidents, released that year in 2016. And Paul Landis was interviewed by, let's see, it was a Cleveland, Ohio newspaper. It might have been the Plain Dealer. Uh, but in, in any event, he came out and he said that uh, the Warren Commission blew it with the single bullet report, the single bullet theory. So you had two gentlemen that don't – again, it's just like John Connolly, Governor Connolly, for many, many years, for basically all his life from the assassination to his death in 1993, just about 30 years later. Connolly always said, oh, the single bullet theory, that's not true. Another shot hit me. 
But he also said Oswald acted alone. He never understood the contradiction there. Well, Clint Hill basically does the same thing. But Clint Hill also said the back of the head was gone of JFK and the wound was in the back, you know, in the shoulder, not the back of the neck. And then he also denies a single bullet there. He never denounced it before. He never made a mention about it until five presidents came out. And he said, I believe the Warren Commission, except for one detail. I do not believe the single bullet theory. And it's like, wow, oh, you cannot have it both ways about the single bullet theory. Oswald or whoever fired the rifle was not the sole assassin. We have a conspiracy. And same with Paul Lance. So not only do we have Paul Lance in 1979 – it was literally little old me. I don't want to, you know, brag or just by default. No one knew about this night, even though it's in the hospital committee final reports buried in a footnote. But there, it's referencing this outside contact report. Paul Lance he confirms the two wars. So for sixteen plus years, he believed his reports. What he said. Now here we are, twenty twenty three, and he's going to claim otherwise. And it's just one of those things where it really infuriates me that these guys come out with these memoirs. Now it's going to be sixty years later, and. Paul Landis is not exactly Clint Hill. I don't know how much his book is going to be hyped, how well it's going to sell. I don't know. Probably will do decent because he's a former agent. If he gets on Fox News, Newsmax, one of these channels, maybe he'll do really well with the book. But I could just see it all now. He's going to parade the fact that I was mistaken. But not one journalist, no news reporter is going to mention not only about the two reports, but more importantly, they're not going to know about the hostile committee, 1979 outside contact report where Paul Lannis is you know, saying that my reports stand. And also they're not going to make heads or tails about the single bullet theory rebuttal, you know, deb- you know, not believe in the single bullet theory. And they're not going to realize, you know, the ramifications of Paul Lannis saying that the single bullet theory isn't true. And again, the whole thing, I get to see it all now. They're going to say he breaks his silence for the first time in 60 years. The final witness is the title of his book. And again, he's not the final witness. You know, there's several people that we know of in the plaza still alive, Mary Mormon, the, the Newman family, you know, and, and now I'll, I'll concede other than Clint Hill and the Secret Service fall off card. Him and Clint Hill were it. And you have to go back to like the press bus people like Robert McNeil, people like that are still alive. So it, it's it's definitely dwindled. But the point is he's not the final one. And more importantly, he's spoken about this for years. But it's a shame. Just like in the 50th anniversary, all these books coming out. You, know, you had Clint Hill's books at that time, especially – you know, trying to just say, oh, it's Oswald, get a life, and they're mistaken. Now, you know, it's another thing, too, it's really um, infuriates me about Clint Hill. From 1963, literally the day it happened, up to, about, I don't know, about five years ago or so, he was always putting his hand on the back of his head. Now the son of a gun is putting his hand more on the side of the head. For the first time ever, uh, it's amazing, he's trying to make it more like a side wound. Somebody must have finally got to him and said, Clint – you realize what you're saying goes against official history. Somebody must have prepped him. Maybe his wife, his co-author wife. Somebody must have got to him, and he's now, oh, he's on the side here. But we have documentaries up to including 2013. We got him countless times in print in his own books, for God's sake, multiple books. He wrote, uh, what, three books? Actually, no, no, I take it back. He wrote four books. Oh, I forgot. He came out with a book uh, last year, in fact. I almost forgot completely about it. It was another uh, – cash grab book like his uh, second book his first book is actually good if you take away a few pa- pages about the assassination it was by Jacqueline Kennedy it was harmless red book you know reader's digest kind of fun the second book um was just a cash grab it was a picture book for the 50th anniversary third one was five presidents his life with you know going from Eisenhower up to Ford I believe it was and you know it was okay 
And this last book was totally like Mrs. Kennedy and me. The first book was pictures. And I even be honest, I even forget the title of it now. It's really not even worth getting, but he made a mint on it like he did in all his other books because he's on Simon & Schuster, the biggest company in the world. They get all the major networks. They get all the print media, internet. So the guy's guaranteed X amount of sales even before the book is released. And you know they've been on a campaign to keep blaming Kennedy for ordering aids off the car where Clint Hill was one of those guys that said in his report that – he never heard the president personally say anything like that, and he got the information from the administrative offices of the White House detail, which is Floyd boring because Gerald Bain was on vacation at that time, and he had nothing to do with ordering off agents off the car. And I've explored that many times before that the buck stops are Floyd boring, the assistant special agent in charge of the White House detail, who was the planner of the Texas trip. And that's where Clint Hill got that that idea that – Kennedy ordered with the car. He got it from Floyd Bourne, not from Kennedy himself. Twice in his report, Clint Hill wouldn't name Floyd Bourne, but he was under oath to Arlen Specter of the Warren Commission. He admitted it was Floyd Bourne who told him this. Yet when I spoke to Floyd Boring, as we famously know, Floyd Boring adamantly denied that that was true. He said, oh, President Kennedy was a very nice man, very cooperative, never interfered with our actions at all. In 1976, he told the JFK Library the same thing, and that was only released because Bill Adams and I – uh, got the JFK Library to release the oral history from 1976 in the year 1999. And in there, Floyd Boring, who protected presidents FDR up the LBJ, said, of all the presidents I served, JFK was the most cooperative. Oh, wow, that kind of shoots the theory about him ordering guys off the car and doing this, doing that. And and all these agents, like I've explored in the past, all these agents told me in letters, emails, on the phone, and non-agents who don't have an axe to grind like Dave Powers and Congressman um, Sam Gibbons who rode a foot away from Kennedy in Tampa all said the same thing. President Kennedy never ordered the agents to do anything, never ordered them off the car. And here's the amazing thing. Even if somebody out there thinks that, well, Vince, isn't the president you know, the leader of the free world, the commander-in-chief, wouldn't he – his pecking order being slightly ahead of a little lowly Secret Service agent? Uh, not when it comes to his security, he isn't. As Presidents Truman, Johnson, and Clinton have all said, the Secret Service is the only boss the President of the United States truly has. It's not the other way around. When it comes to his security, the Secret Service is boss. And there's so much evidence of this. Not only is this in books before the assassination written, also an Associated Press story that went out across the country. November 15th, 1963, the Secret Service can overrule even the President overrule even the president where his personal security is involved it goes on and on and then clint hill ironically with gerald blaine right by his side in 2010 in the sixth floor museum said on video well president kennedy he could tell you what he wants done and he can tell you certain things but that doesn't mean what you, you have to do it you don't have to do it what we used to do was always agree with the president and then we do what we felt was best anyway which is evidenced by the fact that clint hill got on the back of the car four separate times on main street now albeit he rushed back to the fob car uh but i don't know like a minute or so right before they got to the turn you know houston and then from houston to elm he's not there and for years he harbored so much guilt he was crying on you know 60 minutes crying for many years after on documentary saying i should have been there it's my fault i'll live with that to my grave if i was only a second faster we should have been on the back of the car he's in print saying that we should have been on the back of the car he's saying he's not blaming kennedy then all of a sudden, when I sent that 22-page certified letter to him in the summer of 20 or summer of 2005, 
he started to change his tune. And that's when Gerald Blaine also came out of retirement, wrote his book. And Gerald Blaine was a nobody agent. No one knew who he was. Everyone in the world knows who Clint Hill was. But Gerald Blaine, B-L-A-I-N-E, not to be confused with the special agent in charge of the White House detail, Gerald Bain, who's B-E-H-N. Gerald Blaine, only somebody like me knew to knew who he was. He was an obscure agent who was on the Texas trip, but not in Dallas. He flew to Austin and was waiting for Kennedy when Kennedy was assassinated. He only served five years. He was a nobody agent, but he came out with a, a book on Simon and & Schuster. And the book was nothing but filled with lies, blaming Kennedy over and over again. And he uh, mentions me on two pages about naming me. He's a self-described Secret Service expert and all this other stuff. And he, I guess for legal reasons, he wanted to name. He was afraid I was going to sue him or something. I don't know. But the point being, when people read the Kennedy detail, they go, wow, Vince. You can tell it's thou protests too much. And he's blaming Kennedy like crazy. And the thing is, now, again, not did Kennedy never word him off the car. Even if he wanted to, they would have ignored him, as Clint Hill said on video. And more importantly, the Secret Service was the boss. So they'd say, Mr. President, sir – you can go fly a kite or something, maybe more polite than that. They did what they felt was best anyway. Again, evidenced by the fact that Clint Hill got on the back of the car four separate times on Main Street on November 22nd, 1963. Oh, Clint Hill has, has another whopper. He's been saying very recently, it's really disturbing. He's saying, and he said it on a television documentary, and I think he said this in print, maybe in his uh, fourth book or third book. He said that President Kennedy looked at back at me a couple of times and I rode on the back of the car and I could tell basically that, you know, President Kennedy did not like me there, but there was nothing he could do at that point. Uh, all the films and photos and eyewitness testimony, et cetera. There's no evidence that President Kennedy ever looked around. I've never seen a single photo or film of him ever turning around. And more importantly, you couldn't, especially with that bad back of his. He's facing forward and a little bit to the side the way of the people. He's not turning around. He's not giving a rat's you-know-what, uh, some agent being on the back step of the car, even a, a relatively more modern agent. Uh, Dan Emmett, who's an author, laughed at that and said, oh, presidents have too much in their minds to think about what we're doing. They're thinking about you know the crises in the world. They're thinking about their speech. They're trying to go through their speech in their mind to memorize it, or what he was probably doing with the trademark they're approaching. And they're waving to the people, giving them attention. The last thing they're thinking of is, I wonder if uh, Clint Hill's riding in the back of a car. Naughty boy, he shouldn't be there. And last but not least, we'll get back to the, the book and, and the other book, but just real quick – and I brought this up many times. Agents being on the back of the car did not obscure the view of Kennedy, which I've shown on my YouTube channel and still photos as well. The agents on the back of the car and all the eyes of the people in these crowds are transfixed on Kennedy. There's enough room. There's a good, I don't know, five, six feet or so that they can see him just fine. My God, uh, FDR and Truman had agents on the car right beside the president, right beside him, and the president's never protesting. The people could see the president just fine. When they see a celebrity, they don't care about the bodyguards. Hello, just like any celebrity can think of Taylor Swift or a famous actor, actress. Same thing with the president. And these agents were a little further back on the Lincoln Continental holding the hand grab. So it's just all this is all an attempt to try to you know, sway their guilt, their failure. Oswald or no Oswald, conspiracy or no conspiracy. If these men would have did their normal protective duty, Kennedy lives. So that's Paul Lannis's book. But another thing is there's another Paul. I call a YouTube video I've just made called Attack of the Pauls because there's Paul Landis and another book by a Paul Brandis. 
Paul Brands is a journalist who wrote um, somewhat of a bestseller, a book about Jacqueline Kennedy. Seems like a harmless book. He seems like a relatively nice guy. He contacted me a couple times, but shades of Gerald Posner hoodwinking Harold Weisberg. Gerald Posner never said what the his book was about. In fact, he actually hinted it was going to be about the mob did it, and he hoodwinked Harold and came out saying Oswald did it, get a life, everybody. Well, when I spoke to Paul Brandis and correspondent, he never intimated his book was going to be an Oswald Act alone book. In fact, he kind of gave hints that it was going to be some blockbuster explosive book. It, it gave me the impression it was going to be another pro-conspiracy book. It comes out now, and the title of his book – it's amazing. Get this. This is rich. Countdown to Dallas, the incredible coincidences, routines, and blind luck that brought John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald together. It's just it's just crazy. It's insane. And it's uh, – he's saying – and it really got my ire up. In the, this, this is the book description on Amazon. The book's not even going to be out yet. Like, um, his book, Paul Brianz's book's not coming out until April, so next month, April 2023. Paul Lance is not until October of this year. But Paul Brandis says here – the so-called crime of the century, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, was almost preordained to happen. Like all presidents for decades before him, JFK played it loose of security, open cars, secret service agents at a distance, and a desire to be seen. Yet conspiracy buffs are certain the security setup on November 22nd was unusual and suspicious. It wasn't. Now that son of a gun... I sent him so many films and photos of motorcades that he was impressed with, and I'm showing him agents on the back of the car, near the car. I'm showing him many motorcycles flanking the car, far more than are in Dallas, as we know agents were on the back of the car during the assassination. I'm showing him the military aides frequently rode in the car with Kennedy, the fast speed of the cars, um, you know, the press photographer's flatbed truck or trucks, plural, in front of the car, oftentimes even a live television feed. Um, I'm showing the, the police and or military line the streets facing the crowd. I'm showing the rooftops being guarded, all these newspaper articles and Secret Service documents and testimony showing this. A lot of this is before the assassination, real matter of factly. Actually, in a book that was made for young adults that came out the year before the assassination that was written with the help of the Secret Service, chiefly, no pun intended, Chief James Rowley and Chief Inspector Michael Trina, who wrote the Secret Service manual – Says matter-of-factly in the book, whenever the president is to appear in a parade, agents or police line the streets and also guard building rooftops until the president's party passes. Again, they guard the rooftops until the president's party passes. And also that year – in 1962, but in 1963, uh, I I went on newspapers.com and found a whole bunch of articles from Kennedy's trips to uh, Milwaukee, Nashville, Tennessee – you name it, foreign countries, and they're saying about helicopters guarding uh, the route, the you know the routes and, and, the, and the the buildings, and how police are going to man their rooftop stations until President Kennedy passes them. And you go to San Diego, they'll point this out specifically because there's one lone nutter who was a field day trying to say. There's no difference between Dallas and these other trips. Look at this San Diego trip, for example. Uh, he makes an embarrassing mistake. There's many Marines lining the route where Kennedy's motorcade is. There also happens to be two flatbed trucks of still motion photographers in front of Kennedy, including the live television feed that's making this video possible for this lone nutter to lampoon me. And the narrator even says, wow, we have Marines stationed every five yards. They're there to keep the people back, and they're facing the crowds, not Kennedy. There's Marines, again, every five feet all over the place, both sides of the road. 
And building rooftops were guarded because building rooftops were always guarded. FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. And no, this is not hyperbole. This is not Monday morning quarterbacking. I also used to think, oh, they probably just did that as a response to the assassination after the fact until I could not believe my eyes. No, you know, I go dredging newspapers.com and finding all these old articles about, you know, that FDR, Truman, Eisenhower eras where building rooftops were guarded. But more importantly, the Kennedy era, 61 to 63. Uh, in, including Tampa, four days before, 28-mile motorcade, longer than uh, Kennedy's Dallas trip by it's almost three times as long. The Dallas motorcade was between 10 and 11 miles long. Well, the one in Tampa was 28 miles long. They guarded every multi-story building rooftop with sheriff's guards armed with the teeth with Thompson submachine guns, high-powered rifles, and their pistols. I got that not only from documents, but more importantly, I spoke to – the lead motorcycle officer for Tampa, Russell Groover, and he matter-of-factly told me in multiple communications – it's in my books – that, yeah, every multi-story building rooftop, we, we guard them, made sure no willing buildings or windows, I'm sorry, were opened and no untoward uh, activities occurred. Now, you might say to yourself, OK, Vin, that is awesome, but ooh, what about single dwellings? What about that? Like a ranch – uh, building, no problem. Not only were they going at faster rates of speeds when they encountered those kind of buildings, but more importantly, military police or regular police were lying in the streets and facing the crowds. They had uh, police officers in undercover fashion in the crowds themselves. So one-story dwellings were no problem, but any multi-story buildings, those were the ones that were guarded. So when people also try to say, hey, Vince, there's no way they could have guarded all those building rooftops, uh, they didn't. They only guarded the multi-story ones. They didn't bother with the ranch-style ones because those were covered from the eye-to-eye being on the street level with the the military and or agents and or police. And they did that just enough to have a presence on there. They also – if they could, if it was feasible to get uh, manifests of employees if it was feasible, see if there was anybody dangerous, anybody that they wanted to make sure keep away. So obviously even if you believe Oswald Act alone, the vast vast minority of people that believe Oswald Act alone, well, we know Hostie knew he was on the route. So even if you take that tack, Hostie did nothing to tell the Secret Service, hey, this guy is on the Texas School Book Depository. Hey, what about that? So it could have been prevented just from that, just that standpoint alone. That was a standard procedure. So that's why I think it's going to be more Secret Service um, after the fact. Decades later, Paul Lance is going to come to Gerald Blaine's rescue and Clint Hill's rescue. In fact, all three are uh, thicker than thieves. They've been to um, not only association of former agents of Secret Service Association meetings, but they've also met with the director of the Secret Service. They have pictures of them, glad handing them. So it might be an old story, but it's a current event in some respects because I think the current Secret Service does not like the embarrassment of the Kennedy assassination and anybody trying to cast aspersions on the agents of the past, and that's where that's at. But Paul Brannis is going to do this thing where he's going to try to say Oswald acted alone. It was all a bunch of big coincidences, and there was no problems with security, which some lone nutters try to throw at me every once in a while until I shut them up with my hours-long videos of past motorcades with Kennedy, and you can see – Again, agents on the back of the car, many motorcycles, fast speeds, and I show all the um, evidence of Secret Service documents and newspaper articles from the time and books and whatnot written before the assassination. One of them was written by, again, Michael Torino wrote um, 
he, well, he was responsible, I should say, for a passage in the book um, called The United States Secret Service that came out, Walter Bowen and Harry Neal, former agent, in 1960. And it matter of factly says, again, it was contributed by Michael Trina, again, who wrote the Secret Service manual, that whenever presidents appear in a parade, agents or police guard building rooftops. Again, three years before the assassination. In fact, when that book came out, Eisenhower was still president. So there you go, Len, just in a you know a little synopsis there. Both these books are going to come out there again. It's really been a real uphill battle with the mainstream media and books ever since 2013. They're doing their darndest to try to shut this down and say Oswald acted alone and that the Secret Service was not responsible in any way. So that's that's where we're at. So 2023, 60 years later, and we're still fighting this mainstream media assault. Yeah. Well, thank goodness that the, the media is breaking up, you know, thanks to like Black Op Radio, you know, the podcast like Joe Rogan and Jimmy Dore, that, that more and more people are going to some alternate area for information. Yes. Thank God for you guys. Definitely. Yeah. And they're shooting themselves in the foot. You know, you'd think with CNN, I, I didn't realize how bad it was until I we dropped it. And then like after six months, I realized, oh, you know. It's it's just the same as Fox, you know, or MSNBC. Yeah. I mean, I mean, bad. it's. But the thing is, people just they want to hear the truth, and I don't know that how bad would it be if if you found out the truth about the JFK assassination? Do you think America would really crumble? What if they said we found out that vindictive Alan Dulles ordered a crew of his supporters, and they did they pulled this off, you know? Yeah, I agree. You know, you know what it is, Len. I think what it is is, which I explained in my latest book, Honest Answers, which pays homage to so many people before me and people that are running currently with me, whether it's the late Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg, or currently alive and well Jim Diogenio, who's fantastic, and James Douglas, and so many other people. That the, here's why to answer your question directly, why you don't think you know the situation is or they're not coming out admitting there was some, some kind of conspiracy. Here's why I think one of the other reasons people don't think about it is I think as I prove in my latest book, we can prove there was a conspiracy, but people like sound bites, they like Perry Masons, they like CSIs, they want a definitive answer. Okay, you can prove a conspiracy. Well then who did it? And we have a good idea, very good suspicion it was Alan Dawson that, but can we go into a court of law and prove it? No. We have suspicions and we have things, but if there was a judge and this was on, I don't know, it's not court TV, whatever it is now, when they have this, you know, live trials like the Murdoch trial recently, it wouldn't stand up in court as far as, uh, uh, you know, and actually present that someone did it. We can prove that there was a conspiracy like Jim Garrison did in the late 60s, but to prove who did it. And I think that's why it goes around in a circle. It's unsatisfactory. And that's why it keeps the mystery and it keeps this whole case alive is because we can prove a conspiracy. We can't prove specifically who did it. And I know so many people said, well, that's why I wrote the book part of the reason. They say, hey, Vince, I want to know who killed Kennedy. I have so many you know, amateur people that that's the first thing out of their mouth. Then they'll make you just want to throw up. They'll say they think the agent in the fob car did it or they think the driver turned around and shot Kennedy because they want a quick, convenient, sexy kind of answer. Hey, George Hickey did it. Case closed. Or Bill Greer turned around and shot him. Case closed. There's no truth to that whatsoever, but it satisfies them to a point. And when you can't give them the satisfaction, it's like, yeah, okay. You know, it's like it runs around a circle. Now, the good news is for many years – 
you could argue, some people could argue, maybe we couldn't even prove a conspiracy that it was all a bunch of theories and it wasn't grounded in documents and witness testimony. You know, it was just like dribs and drabs. Like we did a brilliant job of debunking the Warren Commission. Brilliant job of debunking the Warren Commission for, for many years. It wasn't more than that. It was always that case of we'll never know what really happened. I don't believe Oswald had to learn, but we're never going to know. Well, we've passed into the second phase. We we can prove there's a conspiracy. But will we ever get to the third and final stage of Alan Dulles did it, this person did it, the Cabals did it with Alan Dulles and a few other CIA agents, of ex-officials like Cord Meyer and that, whatever. Yeah, I dislayed date. I don't think so. And I also think, ironically, we're never going to agree. Here's the Here's the other subplot. Even if indulge the fantasy, wow, they're coming out naming a specific person who was involved. This seems very well grounded in evidence and testimony. It's not like Roscoe White or this, that, and the other. It's like, wow, this seems really believable and plausible. You're going to get people who aren't going to believe it. Hey, that's not my theory. I can't be right. It was the mob. No, come on. It was Jay Groover. It yeah, was the right But you know what? People. I think it's up to the individual to make up their own mind. Because, You're right. Uh, you know, you must be satisfied with some of the things you found out already. So when you first started out, you go, I wonder, you know, if I'll ever know. And then you, you get comfortable. You say, of course, right? And, yes. And then everything that the Warren Commission said, it's not true. And I'm, I'm confident of that. And then also you could say, well... Commission Exhibit 399. Yeah, now that I've examined everything, there's no way that happened. And you get more and more comfortable about, I can say what didn't happen. I might not be able to, there might not be anything on paper that says that, like, you know, Alan Dulles, Ed Lansdale, other people, you know what I mean? You won't find that on paper. Then you just have to go, well, I'm comfortable that I found out enough, enough that I have an idea. It's like you could say about this, um, the bombing of that pipeline between Germany and Russia and that, you know, yes. and, and whether you believe what's his name, uh, but you know what I mean? Like you can say, okay, right. You know, I know who did it now, what we're going to make of it. Right. So, you know, Kennedy was killed. He was, re- I say he was removed by his enemies. And if you want to yeah. study who his enemies were, you get behind yeah. the, the military complex. Imagine that speech, you know, given today. There's Eisenhower on his way out saying, you know, I was president and I learned certain things and every American should be very wary of what's on the horizon. The military industrial yeah. complex. Where the, the, the yeah. power of the military industrial complex. Yep. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine any president having the... Um, Fortitude to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Testicular right. fortitude. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You're right. Well, even now, look what we're having. Trump and Biden both, you know, they release these file releases, but then they won't release them all. We still have the autopsy photos and x-rays, you know, under seal and only, you know, certain stores. Now I'm hearing they're getting tougher with even so-called historians and people with a medical background. They're even getting ever since um, Burke Marshall passed away and whoever the new guy is, they're getting even tougher that they rather would nobody look at them anymore. So it's getting really tough. But yeah, it has a lot to do with um, well, you know, did you, and that. Yeah. yeah, did you see that clip, the video clip from Judge Napolitano? Um, no, he said he asked Trump. He said, "Listen." I, you told me you would release these files and you didn't, you know, now what gives before you get, uh, before you retire, you, you know, or your term is ended, you've got to release them. And he said on the phone to the judge, he said, if you saw what I saw, you'd realize why we can never release them. And it was what, he goes, what did you tell me? And he goes, I can't talk on an open phone, but I'll tell you one day. 
Wow. Yeah, I'll send you that link. It's because uh, you know, it's just it's an anecdotal story, but then you you it kind of starts to every piece fits more yeah, send and more. Me the link. Send that me is that, that is not yes. not Lee Oswald. You know. Yeah. Well, look it's at this. Well, hey, I was there. I witnessed history in the summer of 1992. This is um, quoted in. Um, David Talbot's great book, Brothers, which I'll mention in a couple pages, but more importantly, I was a witness in summer 1992 to Al Gore and Bill Clinton, both running for president and vice president at the time. And somebody in the crowd, because the Oliver Stone movie, even though it was at X amount of months, it was in the cheap theaters at that point, but it was a home video bestseller. It was a hot topic, and everyone was talking about the release of the files and whatnot, and, they, and some lady in the crowd, and I was right there, said – do you believe there was a conspiracy you for the release of these files? And Al Gore was real adamant. He believed there was a conspiracy for the release of the files. Bill Clinton said, I support what my future vice president just said. So he did an old Clinton thing, but he endorsed the idea of a conspiracy. But right when we get all excited about that, we know what he did a year later when he was president. He told Wolf Blitzer, I am satisfied Oswald acted alone. So it's a long litany of presidents who are all excited about the files and have their own beliefs. Like Ronald Reagan supposedly believed the right wing had something to do with it or maybe the Russians depend on who he was interviewed by. But he never did anything with the files. The list goes on and on. We already know about George H.W. Bush and his son. And the list goes on. And even Obama, you know, it took, it took Joe Biden to finally um, pardon Abraham Bolden. You know, it's just uh, it's a hot topic. So to answer your question, even in another way, even though it's 2023, it's still a hot potato because for the government and or the media to admit in a major breaking news development there. Yes, indeed, there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. I think it would still shake like the rafters of power even today in the media and they had to admit they were wrong all these decades. And even for naive people who are just trying to like, you know, worry about their checkbooks and all the other things going on in the world, it would probably shake the foundation to a point. I think we'd survive and get over it. We're a tough people. We survived nine 11 and world wars. We'd be okay. Yeah, but it would still, it would, they would rather just air on. It was Oswald get a life. That seems like the easiest thing to do. Just, eh, it was Oswald. You know, but, in, you know, I always tell people I'm not so wet. I don't see conspiracies in my soup. I believe a lot of us lone assassins were lone assassins. Charles Guiteau, you know, and uh, Leon Cholgaz tried to kill McKinley. I believe Hinckley acted alone. We can go on and on and on. In the interest of time, we're not going to go on and on and on. So I do not. I, you know, this shocks people. I believe 9-11 was what we were told. I don't believe there was explosives in the building, none of that stuff. So, no, I do not see conspiracies in my book. You know what? I'm not invested. If it was Oswald, and I don't believe it was, if it was Oswald acting alone, I have no thing. I'm not going to jump off a bridge. Oh, my God, I was wrong. So I have no, like, I have no horse in the race. Now, I know somebody's going to say, hey, Vince, I see you profiting from five books, pal. Yeah, but I work for a living. I'm not making Clint Hill money. Clint Hill is making hundreds of thousands, and I've been told, actually even the low millions, because all his books came out. Simon Schuster, he got a healthy advance. He got movie and TV rights, even though the movies haven't seen a light of day yet, but you can still get the money. Each book has sold 200,000-plus copies. Cha-ching, he's made a ton of money. The real blood money, the real money makers are the lone nutters. Gerald Pauser, Vince Bugliosi, Clint Hill, Gerald Blaine, David Bell, and the list goes on. And people like me were breaking even. Yes, I made some money for my books, but that was break even for all the years of research. And I've been working full time this whole time. I have a life. I have a wife. You know, I'm paying rent. 
I don't live like, oh, you're profiting from conspiracy. Yeah, I am not profiting from my books, trust me. So that's a long-winded way of saying I have no horse in the race like some people think I do. Like, you're part of the conspiracy cottage industry. That cracks me up so much. The real cons- the real cottage industry is the anti-conspiracy cottage industry of, again, Gerald Blaine, Clint Hill, you know, David Belton, William Manchester, Jim Bishop, those are the people that sold massive amounts of books, made massive amounts of money, received massive amounts of media coverage to the point the average person on the street knows a lot of those people's names, unlike 99% of researchers are like, who is that? I never heard of that person. Yeah, I, so, I heard yeah. Uh, Norman Mailer got a hefty, like, oh, like a million Norman dollars. Oh, Norman got a yeah. chunky. Yeah, he... Uh, yeah, he wasn't hurting for cash. Yeah, but he tied a little a little slip in there. He tried to make it sound like Oswald. There's a remote chance he might have had help. <laughs> so he tried to throw a little dog, a little bone to people. But for years, he quietly thought there was a conspiracy. But you know, Oswald's ghost and that money that the money was a talking, just like when Gerald Posner. I know it was Oswald's tail, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the one. That's right, the one. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's yes. the one. Sorry, but yeah, um, I kind of forgot that book on purpose. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, the point being is that's what makes me so mad. I want to scream from the rafters. The people – I'll just say it again real briefly. The people that are making the money are the people that believe Oswald had to loan. There's only a couple rare exceptions. I can think of two. David Lifton, lifetime, lifelong bachelor. He made money from his book and also the rumors. He also got an inheritance from his parents, so he never had to work a day in his life. It was mainly because of his parents, not the book. He made a nice splash in his book, but that money didn't last forever. Look at these athletes making millions of dollars that they could work for a living when they – all drives away. Well, he didn't make millions from the book, trust me. And Harry Livingstone's the other one who made good money, but he was a lifetime bachelor. And he also came from a rich family and inherited some money from his father. So, uh, yeah, so there's fine print, even the people that did well of their books. So it's very few on our side and I'm, and everybody. So this Paul Brannis has already had a best-selling book and he's part of, um, the white house press court. He's done other books. He's been on TV and whatnot. Watch his book do very well for him, where people like me are on, you know, and I say this with a smile on my face, I love them, trying days like a minor league publishing company, God bless them, and they're not Simon Schuster, they're not Macmillan, et cetera, et cetera, so it's an uphill battle, you know, it's good, now thank God, as I always tell people, thank God, if I was meant to be published, thank God I was published 2010 onward, because now we have Kindle, we have Amazon, you know, online purchasing is a normal thing. There's many authors that, you know, were published in the pre-Kindle days, pre-Amazon days, or at very least when Amazon was still considered like, I've heard for years, people were like, I'm not putting my credit card online, buying anything. So the, it used to be, if your book wasn't in a bookstore, physical bookstore, it died. No one bought it but you and your parents. That was it. See, now it's great because people just have to put JFK assassination in the Amazon search engine and my book comes up and they don't care if it's the Acme Publishing Company or Simon Schuster and my books sell every week. They're not selling like Clint Hill's book, mind you, but they're selling. They're out there, thank God. And I would wager if it wasn't for Kindle and Amazon – all five of my books would have died, and quite frankly, there wouldn't have been a second book or a third book because the first book would have died. And it'd be like, hey, Ben, can't afford a publisher, man. You didn't sell a dime. But what happened is, thank God for the internet and especially Amazon has really leveled the playing field to a point. Obviously, you can't compete with the huge heavyweights, but for you know, mom and pops out there across the world, Christmas gifts, gifts in general, you know, they're selling every week, and uh, that's good. It keeps gets it out there, and you know, it's kind of the alternative grassroots press times a hundred. At least it gets it out there to people, and uh, 
you know, this, that, and the other. And all my stuff online is for free. <laughs> so I, I give out stuff so much for free, even more that I almost circumvent my books to a point because people will say, Vince, I'd love to get your book. And I tell them, then I tell them about my YouTube channel. And you can tell they're like, oh, that's free. Okay, I'm going to go to your YouTube channel. Thanks, Vince. So yeah, for the point being, I'm just happy to have the information out there. So, and what you're doing a great job too. It's so good to see black op radio out there and, you know, doing what you guys are doing too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Well, we'll make links to your website, vincepalamera.com and also to your blog spot. So uh, look forward to anything there. All right. As I said, I'm going to be visiting John Armstrong. So Excellent. I'll send you an email and I'll keep you in touch with, what's going on and uh, you were retired maybe you're coming out of retirement a bit i'm coming out i'm back baby i'm back (laughs) okay well i'd be glad to do something with you so i'll let you know how that all goes that sounds good man okay Okay. in the meantime then uh, just is there anything else that uh, i didn't really bring up too much you i just wanted you to talk about these two Oh, I appreciate it. Right. So uh, anything else we should say before we wrap up? No, I just say thanks again for having me. Thank you. And thank you all your listeners. I always get feedback being on the show from people saying, hey, I heard you on Black Op Radio. So you're reaching people, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks. We'll talk again. Sounds good, man. All right. Thank you, Vince. All right. Take care. Thanks. Good night.